welcome back to Classical Christian Virtues. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Dernlin, as we journey together toward the good life by cultivating virtue and resisting vice one week at a time. The companion book to this podcast is also entitled Classical Christian Virtues. You can pick that up at Amazon.com or you can get more information at TimDernlin.com. If you head over there, please do leave me a message. I like reading those each week. Finally, Subscribe to this podcast, give it a five-star rating, pass it on to a friend, and we'll build this classical Christian virtues community together. Love you all. Let's get started. All right, I'm so glad you've joined us. We're talking about the virtue of cooperation this week, and I am excited about our guest Let's jump right into it. We have Lieutenant Commander Thomas Key, and Thomas Key is a Marine, served as an officer for 10 years, now in the Navy, also certified CPA, and is a uh, fantastic history teacher at Bayshore Christian School, and he has a wife and four kids, just a really, really fantastic human being, and is uh, given some good thought on cooperation. Thomas, thanks so much for being with us. Yes, sir. Thanks, Dr. Darnley. Yeah, and uh, tell us more about you. I just gave some really brief highlights, and I think this is a mostly a, a podcast here, and so I can't see people, but I could hear their eyes widening as I said, 10 years as a Marine officer, five years in the Navy, CPA certified, teaching at a classical Christian school. Uh, <laughs> tell, us, tell us more about your background. Yes, sir. Um, so I, I grew up in Point Clear, Alabama, which was a very rural area growing up, and is on Mobile Bay. I had kind of a Huck Finn childhood, and uh, it, it was great. It, no shoes, no shirt, no no curfew. Um, anyway, uh, I was always surrounded by good people that uh, cared about my future, and they'd say, Thomas, fill out this application to this, that, and the other. So Anyway, uh, praise God for them. I, I said yes, sir, and did what I was told and filled things out. Went to college, um, graduated with a history degree, and upon graduation, I was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Marines. Went in and flew C-130s for 10 years and then uh, hopped out and joined the Navy Reserve and started teaching school. So, so in the Marines, you were a pilot? Yes, sir, I was. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. What all did your, your 10 years entail, some of your highlights? Oh, goodness. So the first couple of years, you're in, in flight school, heavy training. So a lot of studying and uh, and just trying not to get attrited. And uh, then you, you show up to your first duty station. Uh, and mine was in Cherry Point, North Carolina. And uh, I attached to a C-130 squadron there which was a blast. Uh, if you don't know, C-130s are the, the larger aircraft with four propellers, do a lot of uh, airdrops, aerial refueling, transport. Um, so with that aircraft, I deployed to Afghanistan one time and uh, to Africa one time and a bunch of little, little things in between. Uh, and then I got, uh, what a treat, I got uh, asked to go down to Pensacola to train student pilots, student aviators. Oh, wow. uh, which is right next to home. So I, I had a blast for my final tour down here in Pensacola. Oh, that's fantastic. And now you're, you're back home in Alabama. Yes, sir. So you those little orange and white single prop planes you, you hear and see flying over your head all day long, those, those are coming out of Florida. Those are the trainers that the, the Navy is training in. 
Okay. Oh, very good. Very good. So, so when you uh, transitioned from uh, the uh, Marine to Navy, uh, what was that like? And what's in store for you now that uh, for the next few years as you're in the Navy? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was fairly seamless uh, for as a transition. Uh, the rank title changes you know, the navy calls 03 something different than what the marines call them so uh it, it was a little tough they in the navy they call an 03 lieutenant which is the most junior rank in the marines so anyway there was a lot of confusion over you know how much authority i actually held who is this guy who's calling himself so uh that that was the only hiccup but uh i i've deployed as a naval reservist one time i went to afghanistan about four years ago and uh, I'm about to go again here in a couple of weeks. Um, about every five years, you got to play ball and uh, and and earn it and uh, and pay for our freedoms like our fathers and grandfathers did. So about every five years, as a reservist, you'll deploy. And uh, and thank you so much, sir, for your service. And we won't forget. Amen. My pleasure. We appreciate it. It sounds to me like you have had a lot of opportunity to experience uh, the virtue of cooperation and the vice of excess, the vice of deficiency. Uh, for those of you uh, joining this uh, podcast and aren't aware, we do talk about virtue from an Aristotelian point of view and searching for that golden mean of virtue between two vices. So um, the idea is that the virtue is the sweet spot or the golden mean between two vices. And it, with cooperation, the when there's too much cooperation, the vice of excess and the excess of cooperation is groupthink, and the vice of deficiency, the lack of cooperation, is disagreeableness. Uh, Thomas, in talking, in talking a little bit and to you and having you think through it, anything that comes to mind when, uh, when you start thinking about the virtue of cooperation? Uh, yes, sir. So in my mind, I, I think of it as, as the setting where you're part of a team trying to accomplish a goal or a mission. That's what I think is the setting of cooperation. And that's separate from some of the other virtues I read in your book were, uh, you know, friendliness and adaptability. Some people would roll those under cooperation, but I, I keep those separate. So I, I think cooperation, uh, you can roll love and faith and confidence and trust under it. There, there are very few missions or goals in life we try to accomplish where we're not part of a team, where, where you're, there are very few times where you're going to sink or swim alone, right? Whether you're working with your spouse on how to discipline your children, or you're working with a bunch of folks uh, at the school on building a new school, or working with people in the church, you know, very rarely are you not part of a team. And one of the best ways to cooperate is, is knowing, uh, one, the mission of that team, and two, what your role is in that team. Are you the leader of the team or are you not? Uh, if, if you are the leader, there are certain things you need to have an awareness on to, to foster a culture of cooperation. And if you're not the leader, you need to also foster that culture of cooperation, but, but understand that you need to support the leader, giving them as much information as they can have. And, uh, you know, in this egalitarian culture, a lot of times, you know, they're trying to tell us, oh, well, it, we're all the same. There's no one person in charge of a team. I disagree with that. I think even if there's a committee in charge, if you scratch deep enough, you'll find the person that's 
going to say the final yes or the final no. So sure. how to support that person and accomplish the mission of the team requires cooperation. I, I love that you uh, talked about love and faith and confidence all rolled up underneath, kind of underpinning cooperation. That's uh, that's neat. And then even just the analogy of working with your wife or your spouse and all the different ways we need to cooperate. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then the idea of communication, clear communication, clear role description, clear mission, role definition, all of that is so important and sometimes taken for granted. And we we're wondering why we can't cooperate sometimes. And there's all these really, really intricate moving parts to, to allow us to reach that virtue of cooperation. Oh, yeah. As a naval reservist, you know, we, we have different jobs. And right now I'm with the unit, and, and we try to foster what we call crew resource management throughout the naval aviation community. And crew resource management, it's, it's funny you asked me to talk about cooperation, is all about cooperation, having a crew work as a team to accomplish the mission. And uh, the airlines have, have taken on crew resource management, CRM, I'll call it from here on out, uh, in reaction to uh, a lot of mishaps in the 70s and 80s where the captain of the aircraft got task saturated or, or overwhelmed or missed a checklist, and the first officer or maybe the flight engineer noticed the error but was not assertive enough to point it out. There was this there was this gradient, this authority gradient, and people were afraid to speak up and work as a team. And that led to death, uh, mass death. So the airline started looking into it first and then maybe got on board. So, so it seems uh, that that could be the vice of excess, too much cooperation. Um, very, very much so. Wasn't willing to point that out. Hmm. Yeah, just... You know, assuming the other guy's got it, he, you know, he'll figure it out. I don't want to, I don't have the confidence to speak up. So you're not supporting the leader. You're not being a good team member and cooperating like you should. So cooperation takes, takes some courage, you know, to tell somebody some bad news if they need to hear it. You're off airspeed, you know. Yeah, and that's, uh, we're actually talking about courage in next week's podcast. And uh, it's interesting how so many of these really do end up intertwining together and uh and that's why it's a never-ending uh never-ending ordeal to try and achieve these uh vices and perfection in our life like jesus christ uh, oh yeah uh, amen makes life fun doesn't it <laughs> yes it does amen on the on the other side of uh cooperation on the on the um the deficiency yes on the deficiency where it you, you may have a tyrant in charge who will not listen to advice. That's that's dangerous. And if you're the leader of a team, you may not feel like you're creating that environment. But having an awareness of your position and the rest of the people on a team, you you may be able to head off some cooperation problems. For instance, if if you you're the head of the head of the school and you are talking to a brand new you know, 26 year old employee you, you need to be careful is this person just going to say yes and be a yes man because you're the boss and you're older than they are you know just be conscious of those gradients um, and, and make sure you can foster that culture of cooperation 
it's really interesting. Uh, a time I ran into that early in my career, I was coaching college wrestling and I was a, an assistant coach several places. And when I earned the title of head coach, all of a sudden it was as if I was speaking through a megaphone, even though I was saying the exact same thing, people just like you used your example before were maybe cautious to, to speak up. And so having that empathy and, and awareness of others as a, as a leader is, is important to foster cooperation and draw people in. Do you have any thoughts? You're a history professor. You have all kinds of uh, great knowledge in, the, in that area. I often ask the question, is there anything from the Bible, literature, or history that you can think of that is a good example of co- the virtue of cooperation or the vice of uh, groupthink or disagreeableness? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's so... I'm in a uh, a history course right now in grad school, and it's on the Civil War, and it's just a blast. Uh, the professors have us reading the most fun stuff, but um, there uh, there's a great example of a lack of cooperation between you had President Lincoln and his chief of the army was General Halleck, and then for the first two years of the war. The, the lead general of the Army of the Potomac was General McClellan. So these three guys, they were the top-tier guys trying to win this war, this civil war. And it was like trying to fit square pegs and round holes. And they did not get along. You had McClellan, who was a very strong personality and hated Lincoln. And Lincoln is trying his best to, to get this war over with. McClellan will not move, will not fight. And you've got Halleck right there in the middle between them. And Halleck has a weak personality, and he's trying to appease all of them. And they just can't work together. The the South was winning the war, and some people say because of this this broken relationship between three top guys. And uh, finally, Lincoln had had enough, and he plucked McClellan out, fired McClellan, and set him at, at another position and put in General Grant. It was a few generals later. Lincoln had to go through several generals to find the right one. Finally, he landed on Grant. And it's it's like you put a well-oiled gear into a clock, which fits into the other gears, and it just started moving. That's when the war started going the way of the North, and uh, their cooperation was phenomenal. Grant appreciated the authority of Lincoln, understood his role in the team. It's interesting how just that one move uh, would you say it shifted the whole momentum and outcome of the war? I would. I would. Uh, you, you may know that McClellan hated Lincoln so much, he actually ran against him in the 1864 elections for president. Um, they just, they, they called them Lincolnites or McClellan, McClellanites. You know, they were so polar opposite. Uh, they just couldn't get anything accomplished because they, they couldn't cooperate. That's a great example. I've I've often wondered when there's, a real lack of virtue from a lot of people. They have too much cooperation, and so they end up having the uh, the vice of groupthink or thoughtlessness. If one person then can be tempted to step in with the vice of disagreeableness or be demanding and kind of rise up as a as a dictator type of leader, and that vice occurs when there's a a lot of vice from a lot of other people who are just totally thoughtless or being willing, willing to go along and group things. And I'm wondering if um, 
I'm wondering how that happens, how dictators come to power and just rule over people. I, I have talked with the students about this. How does, how does a dictator come about? And I've always told them it's, it's a three-step process. Um, one, some guy who will become the dictator tells you that you're a victim and gets you going into group think that, that you're a victim, you have been wronged, and, and step two, those so are the bad guys. They're all saying, yeah, 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 we, we've been wronged. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so in this mob, you're, you're actually creating a mob with no free thinkers, right? Telling them they're a victim. Because a lot of people love to bite off on that. Sure. So they go into group think they become a mob. And then step two is point out the bad guy. Those, those are the bad guys. Or, or that's who did it to you. Get them into group think. So, so unify so their hate. Us versus them mentality. Right, right. Okay. And then the third step is, is the dictator says, I have the answer. Follow me and, and I'll get you what you need. And I'll right the wrongs. Uh, and so a lot of times that setting occurs when people become desperate, when people are, are poor, running out of food, or a lot of plans have failed, then they're willing to hear that they're a victim. So is it um, in that stirring up of chaos and creating an us versus them mentality, step one and two, is there, uh, are there any examples um, or evidence that folks will create the lack of food, lack of finances, any of that to then to then even rise up and say, now step three, I have the answers. Oh yeah, that's that's a classic move by the socialists and the communists. Uh, they they show up to a situation that it may already be bad. People don't have enough to eat or don't feel safe, and the socialists or communists will say, "Oh, you should have enough to eat. You should feel safe. You're a victim, and it's." Those folks that your previous government's causing the problem, they should be taking care of you. And under our system, look, we could all work together. And yeah, that, that yeah, that's a classic Maybe socialist move. Huh. All yeah. right. Any any other uh, any other thoughts or stories from history come to mind? Oh yeah, um, I just love local history down here on Mobile Bay. And uh, yeah, on August fifth of eighteen sixty four. Admiral Farragut was charged to, to plug up Mobile Bay. Mobile Bay was one of the last ports of entry and exit for the South where we could get supplies in, such as ammunition, medicine, coffee, and, and get supplies out, sell cotton down to the, the British who were down in the Bahamas. So it was the one lifeline left. So, so for uh, folks who are unaware of uh, local geography and landmarks, set up how it, how it looks down here and and uh, what what uh, what the unique situation is that they were trying to press through? Oh yeah, so Mobile Bay is an excellent port. Uh, not very deep water, but good enough. But what makes it great is is the uh, the the shape of the bay. So at the very northern part of the bay, you can think of the bay as kind of a uh, a triangle, a right side up triangle. And at the very tip of the triangle is is Mobile, the city. And down at the bottom of the triangle. On the east side of the triangle, you've got the Fort Morgan Peninsula, which juts out almost enclosing the triangle. And there's, there's water in the middle of the triangle. And then on the bottom left of the triangle, on the west side, you've got Dolphin Island. And so there's only one little sliver of water that enters that triangle that connects the bay to the gulf. 
And that is right between Dolphin Island and Fort Morgan Peninsula. So you, you can assume, and, and rightly so, that they would anybody defending this bay would put a fort right on Fort Morgan Peninsula and a fort right on Dolphin Island. So anything coming in or out will be subject to fire from those two forts. And uh, so Farragut has to run this gauntlet to gain sea power of the bay uh, in the Civil War. And finally, stop, you know, starve out the South from getting anything in or out. And he's got his plan, and on August 5th, he executes, and he is the second ship in the line to go through the gauntlet. And speed is the key to this thing. You know, you want to be under the guns as, as, as short amount of time as possible. Just get through it, and then, and then you can lay siege to the forts. Well, not only is the entrance guarded by these two forts on either side of the bay, but there's a, a row of mines extending from Dolphin Island out into the channel of the bay. So it, it actually makes the entry and exit point, the safe entry and exit point, even smaller. Because if, if you go too far to the west, you're going to hit the underwater mines. Well, the first ship in the line of Farragut's convoy going through this gauntlet he messes up his navigation. He thinks he thinks he's about to run into the mines. So right in, in the kill zone, in the throat of the bay, the captain of this first ship just stops. Uh, and, oh, no. Yeah, and so you can you can just think of a train of ships behind this guy trying to get through the channel. He stops and blocks the whole thing up. And everybody's about to run into his stern. Farragut's just screaming at him, what are you doing? You're messing this whole thing. We can't, of course, you can't reverse in those ships. You know, you're committed. So it's either, either crash into his own ship or go through the minefield. That was, those were Farragut's two choices. And damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. He goes through the minefield. They call them torpedoes then. Is that where that saying comes from right there? It is. Okay. Yes. Uh, that, he, that, that was the choice he had to make, and it was the right choice. The torpedoes and the mines had been in the water for so long, they had rusted out. The triggers and fuses had rusted. But uh, there, there's a journal that, that we have. It was kept by one of the engineers, and the engineers in the ships worked below the waterline and right against the hull. And the engineer said he could hear the mines bumping against the hull of the ship as they went through. And you just never know which one's going to go off. You know, he's, he said that was a, a very tense moment. Wow. Yeah. There's so much in that battle and, and um, piece of history there. I mean, the, uh, the deficiency of cooperation, the disagreeableness of the first captain going through, the, the, um, the courage it took to push through, just all kinds of, all kinds of uh, good examples in that. Wow. wow. Yeah, and, and I think it shows another, another uh, virtue that could go under cooperation is, is adaptability as well. Okay. Farragut had to adapt, and, and his whole team had to cooperate with him with that adaptation. And he had to communicate the new plan with the rest of the team. Uh, he had to make a leadership decision. So a, a lot of stuff rolls under cooperation, especially in, in heated times. It does. He could adapt well because he was so well-trained and so well-prepared. When, when you do that, you put in your time and effort and work, you can adapt quickly. Um, cause you're, you're prepared. Amen. 
film. Well, very good. Well, uh, Lieutenant Commander Key, I could uh, talk with you all day. I do want to cover one thing, though. I'm, I'm uh, Actually, before we switch uh, topics, do you have anything else you want to add? Well, I want to give a, a one shout out to those who have been accused of being disagreeable before. Sometimes that's really good. We were on, I was a deacon the last few years and on the diaconate site. We had a tendency to go into groupthink a lot. Um, it, we'd come up with a solution to a problem, and yeah, yeah, oh, that sounds great. And I'd be in the in the room, and I I wasn't completely comfortable with the solution, and, and I knew that others weren't either. But no one would speak up. We'd gotten a group, but there was this one old guy, and he would raise his hand and, and stop the nonsense. Says, Look, he'd point out the holes in the plan, and. Some people thought he was an ornery old man. I thought it was great, you know, to have a good free thinker on the team who would stop us and say, hey, no, let's, let's reset. And, and that worked out great. There's so many good examples of that. I mean, um, the emperor has no clothes, takes one person to stand up and stop that. The 12 yeah. men um, it, with uh, one juror, there's, and I don't, I don't find that, um, I think sometimes cooperation People think it means we all just have to get along, sing kumbaya, but sometimes that's just the vice of groupthink that we yeah. it as okay. And so I don't think having good, healthy debate and discussion and disagreements is being disagreeable. I think it's that's actually part of the virtue of cooperation that we've just um, allowed to be misformed in today's society. Amen. Yeah. So, but ah, I like that. That's a great point. So, so um, it, it's such a blessing to have you on here. And you're not only um, skilled in military, skilled in finance, um, skilled uh, professor in teaching. You've also written this, uh, this great book, uh, A Classical Approach to Teaching History. We do have uh, quite a, a large following of listeners that are starting to listen to this. Some of them are involved in Christian education. And I just want to say any of you that are listening and want a, uh, a good approachable guide to teaching history, uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander Key, Mr. Key, has this book, and you can find it on Amazon.com. Again, a classical approach to teaching history. You can find it on Amazon.com. Pick it up. It's, um, it's a neat uh, brief read here, about 30 or 35 pages. Uh, you want to talk to us a little bit about this and your idea behind it and how you think it could help people? Yes, sir. Um, I've been teaching history for a while now. and uh, I ha I've always had a lesson plan and lesson objectives, but sometimes I would just get really excited about a topic and start throwing more things at the students. And uh, I would kind of feel my way out until I, until I felt like, okay, they, they knew the topic well enough, let's move on. And it, it just seemed sloppy and like I didn't have a, a, a system. And I, I wanted to figure out what is, what is the minimum a student needs to know for, for the teacher to say, all right, they got this. Now, you can add more, and, and that's all bonus if you want to go deeper into something. But in order to move on to the next unit of study, what, what are the minimum things they, they really need to know? So you, you can check that off the list. So I started thinking a lot about it and reading on it. And I feel like if I teach a unit, if the student can understand who the author is, you know, their worldview and their training, if, if they can understand what the setting is, uh, 
why was the author writing this at, at that particular time? What's going on around him? What's influencing his world? And then finally, what's the author's argument? Those three things, author, setting, and argument, I think are the minimum things that a student should know before you can feel comfortable moving on. And, and you can go deeper into one or another of those topics, um, but I think just a good understanding of those can set a foundation and set you up for success for the next unit of study. So, That's fantastic. Yeah. And so, uh, so you use that in this book and you uh, have some good examples and um, it's helpful. I actually uh, uh, found it uh, on my wife's nightstand. She was uh, reading it. She had purchased it and was reading it. I found it just before we started talking. So this is uh, really fantastic. Really fantastic. I really appreciate it. I do encourage everybody uh, to pick this up um, and give it a read and refer it to your history teacher at your school or your uh, headmaster. It's a really, really fantastic resource. So anything else you want to say about that book? Uh, no, no. I just, I had a blast writing it. And I wrote it mostly to, to get my thoughts down, uh, to, to organize this, this mess of ideas and, and kind of get myself calibrated and get, get some procedure to my thinking. Uh, I said in the book that teaching history is, is mostly an art, but you can still put some procedure to it and, and, uh, and, and have a, a well-executed plan. Sure, and, and uh, good art does have uh, some good procedure behind it and uh, the, the golden ratio and all kinds of different... I'm not going to claim to be an artist, so I'm going to stop <laughs> talking. But, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Well, it's been a blessing talking with you, and uh, I'm so uh, thankful to have you as a friend, and I'm thankful for your time, uh, and I'm, I'm so thankful for your disciplined life, not only in in uh, how you live your life, but you're serving on the front line for our country. You're serving, uh, when you go overseas, you're serving on the front line for our country when you're in the classroom cha uh, training this next generation. And your life is such a, uh, a, a blessing and a reflection of Christ and an act of service. And I love your discipline and how it's gone into your, your, your book and into your, uh, your your whole life and it's uh, just flowing out here so maybe maybe we should use an example for the virtue of discipline when we get to that <laughs> so <laughs> you bet I, I love it so uh, thank you so much I really appreciate your time and uh, I pray that God will keep you safe and we'll be praying for you and, and God bless you brother yeah God bless you Tim thanks man thank you so much for joining us today you can help build this community by subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with a friend, giving it a five-star rating, or writing a comment or review below. All four of those things really, really help. If you'd like to go deeper into this study, you can pick up Classical Christian Virtues at Amazon.com and follow along with us, answer the additional questions in your book, and dive a little deeper. While you're at it, you can pick up a copy for a friend. If you'd like to contact me directly, please go to TimDernland.com and shoot me a message. I'd really like to hear from you. Until next time, may God the Father bless you and the Holy Spirit guide you. You strive to live like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by resisting vice and cultivating virtue for the good of others and the glory of God alone.